0: song. I don't think I've heard that one before. Good, good job, Brother John. Thank you, Jubal, as well, for accompanying him. It's good to see all of you here. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Philemon. We're looking at this small letter that, just like uh, Jude, uh, even though it's uh, one that we uh, tend to overlook because of its brevity, uh, the ideas that uh, are expressed in it and especially the ideas that form its foundation, are vital for us to understand. And I think as we, uh, as we live, and I, I, I don't like uh, having to, to keep uh, talking in these terms, but as we, as we live in a world that seems to be less recognizable, for those of us at least that have lived some time uh, on this earth. as we as we move into times that uh, uh, are abnormal, um, it is important that you and I be clear on what it is that we're a part of here at church. what what does it really mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? What does that? have to do with our lives in this world? How does that affect us uh, and our relationships with other people? How are we to understand what we belong to? What are we part of? And although Philemon is a small letter, what it exposes to us in a very obvious way is that being a believer in Jesus Christ brings us into a bigger fellowship. It, it brings us into, uh, into something that is beyond ourselves. And this is something that you and I in particular struggle with. And I want to elaborate upon this for a moment it ties together things I left out or didn't say last week with things that we'll look at this week. 1 Sometimes I'm afraid that while the the freedoms that we are afforded in our nation are wonderful, the lives we live in this nation are becoming something very tragic. Let me elaborate upon that for a moment. The ancient Greeks understood that if you let democracy go to its full seed, what it eventually leads to is a people with a twisted sense of individualism where eventually even the most basic of human relationships becomes strained because of the emphasis on individualism. So, if your focus becomes yourself, and we teach you to focus on yourself, where the highest good is your own personal freedom to pursue whatever it is that you define for your own life, Where that ultimately leads in its logical conclusion is you living in a bubble of yourself. You're an island off alone. And you struggle to have relationships with your family. Parental and child relationships become strained. They become next to impossible. And it almost becomes impossible to have any kind of government without a strong man because people become chaotic. They become anarchic. And this they seem to have it pegged pretty well, don't they? What's been going on in our world? And and I've talked about this with you just a little bit, that pre-COVID, the biggest problem that was foreseen in all Western societies was the problem of aloneness. People can't form relationships. They struggle to get married. They want to live off as as islands to themselves. And what's worse, what purports to be social media, we've had it long enough to know that it actually makes you antisocial. And so people try to to just go it alone. People think that, that life that their life is lived as something less than it should be if in any part of their lives they have to depend upon other people to do things for them that they cannot do for themselves. So if something, well, we've had this expression for a long time. If you want something done right, how do you do it? You do it yourself, right? Right? Except what if you don't know how to do that thing? What if it's something you have no skill with at all? My wife does not want me to build our house, and she knows that, but I know that too. If we had to build a house from the ground up, I would be the worst person to choose if you wanted it done right. But you you can't do everything. And we learn this when it comes to information. How are you going to function in the world if you think that you have to be an expert on everything before you can ever form a decision on anything? It's impossible. Now where we are really struggling too as a nation is that we don't trust people t- who are supposed to know what they're telling us. We don't know who to trust. And we know we can't, we don't have enough time to be experts on everything ourselves. And so we're left in a position of of being frustrated because we can't get to the information. And the people who are supposed to know the information, we don't trust that they actually do. And that's on a whole range of issues. My point is that we have to live in a broader society and yet the very currents of our society make us want to just be little islands, to be off by ourselves with our own little niches, with our own little things, with our own little bubbles of information struggling frustratingly to make sense of the world by ourselves. And where this ultimately leads is is the destruction of a life, the destruction of a society. Because, one, we're not made to live like this. And, two, since we're not made to live like this, it turns out we actually can't. And so, if we begin now building back in a biblical view for just a moment... And I hope you'll come this Wednesday night. I'll put a plug in for this. Because this Wednesday night we'll be studying God's creation of woman and of marriage. All of which kicks off in Genesis with God's own observation. It is not good that the man should be what? Alone. You're not made to live by yourself. You're not made to be an island unto yourself. We're made to be relational, first of all relational with God, then relational in our marriage, relational with our children, and in the bigger societies that we create together. It is a corruption of the understanding of God's creation of man that we should try to live as islands unto ourselves. We're not made that way. Nor are we saved to live this way. And the key issue that I, that I hope to bring out in an encouraging way is that becoming a believer in Jesus Christ is supposed to open us up to fellowship with others who share our faith. It is supposed to instill in us the characteristic of God's love, the characteristic of trust and trustworthiness, so that rather than trying to isolate ourselves from everyone else, we become open to actually living the way God created us to live in the first place. To have relationships, meaningful, deep shared relationships around truth with one another that stem from a mutual relationship with God. That's how we're meant to be. And Paul writes of this. In fact, we can't understand Philemon at all without this foundation. So here's the key thing I want to challenge you on this morning. Is Christianity just a system of religion that's between you and God alone? Or is it something bigger? Is it something bigger? All right, now let's look at what Paul has to say in verses 4, 5, and 6. Actually, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of Philemon Where he writes this, I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of your faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the bowels of the saints Are refreshed by thee, brother. Now, as Paul moves into the main body of the letter, he takes on a personal and very pastoral tone. But we have every reason to wonder that despite the depth of familiarity and relationship that is expressed by Paul, we have every reason to wonder if, if Paul ever actually personally met Philemon. That is that, that Paul seems to have a deep bond with Philemon even though they may never have met one another personally. Let me build that background with you for just a moment. Paul's letter to Philemon is tied directly to his letter to the Colossians. And it, it, it does he does so with two names. We've already uh, heard one of those names. In verse 2 of Philemon, he mentions Archippus, our fellow soldier. And then the letter of Philemon itself will revolve around a runaway slave, apparently, that Philemon had, whose name was Onesimus. Onesimus, you can see him mentioned for the first time in verse 10 where he says, I beseech you for my son Onesimus. Now go with me to the book of Colossians for just a minute. The book of Colossians chapter 4, and I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2 as well. But in Colossians 4.9 and Colossians 4.17, we meet Onesimus and Archippus. I want you to notice what he says about Onesimus in verse 9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. What? What comes next? Who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. In verse 9 of Colossians 4 then, Paul refers to Onesimus as one of the Colossians. He belonged to that congregation. Then in verse 17... The Colossians are to say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you fulfill it. We have every reason to think that it's highly probable that the church at Colossae met in in Philemon's home and that Onesimus was a part of this congregation. Archippus is clearly a part of the congregation because in Philemon... The letter is addressed to Archippus as well as to Philemon. And then also you'll remember the letter is addressed, that is the letter of Philemon, to the church which is in your house. So it seems that the place where the church at Colossae met was in Philemon's home. Now, go back to Colossians chapter 2 if you're still there. Look at what he has to say about his encouragement of this congregation. He says, I want that you know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. You see that? You've never seen me. But I want you to know that my conflict, that is the struggle that I have and the persecutions and tribulations that I undergo, I do it even for your church and for the church at Laodicea and for all the other churches, the people who have never seen my face in the flesh. Now what does that suggest to you? It suggests that the church at Colossae is a congregation of people that Paul has a relationship with, a very intimate one with, but that he has never been to. They've never seen each other. And yet there's a bond that exists between them that is deep. And where Paul, even though he wasn't responsible for starting the church, and even though they've never seen each other face to face, Paul is concerned about the growing love, the need for for love to grow amongst this congregation. He's concerned about their faithfulness, their obedience, their spiritual growth. He is very intimately concerned about this congregation and he still has a pastoral sense of his relationship with them. So notice that you can make the case that as Paul now addresses Philemon personally, because he switches to the singular in verse 4, that as he thanks God for him, he's thanking God for someone he's never personally met. It doesn't, the relationship between Paul and Philemon doesn't depend upon their physically seeing each other. It it depends upon and it is rooted in their shared faith in Christ. It is a transcendent relationship that goes beyond Paul's personal circumstances, Paul's physical location. And whether or not he and Philemon actually know each other. And yet the bonds are there. The deep concern is there. The love is there. The desire to see him grow is there. Even though Paul may never have met him personally. Think about about the depth of relationship here then that's rooted in Christ and Paul is able to say and of course this is the first point that he makes Paul is able to say to Philemon that I thank God for you even though he may not have ever met him face to face I am thanking God for you now let's let's move to thinking about this idea Paul's prayer of thanksgiving Paul routinely expresses that he gives thanks to God for people or for churches and we have every reason to uh, to think that he doesn't express this as a matter of formality but rather he expresses it as a point of sincerity. Paul was truly thankful to God knowing that The kind of man, the kind of life that Philemon was living among the brothers. And because of the love, or in light of the love, that Philemon had shown toward other brothers, Paul was able to express that there is with him the ongoing habitual practice of thanking God for Philemon. I want to ask us this simple question. In our own prayer life, do we express thanksgiving to God for one another? Are we thankful to God for one another? And I don't just mean that we physically know each other. I don't just mean that we're that that from time to time we happen to be in the same room. What I mean is do we thank God for the fact that one another, that each of us to the degree that we know and understand exhibit godly behaviors in our own lives Paul wasn't expressing thanksgiving to God to Philemon because Philemon had sent him money he wasn't expressing thanksgiving to God for Philemon because he had been to Philemon's house and Philemon had shown him hospitality Paul had been informed of Philemon's character, of Philemon's godly behavior toward others. And Paul says, this produces in me the habitual practice of thanking God for you. John says something similar in the letter of 2 John. That he rejoiced exceedingly to find the children of the lady to whom he wrote the letter. To find her children walking in the truth, walking in the Lord. Their obedience was a reason for joy. Philemon's obedience was a reason for Paul's thanksgiving. Notice then something, that in order for Paul to make such a statement, and it is clear that he does, Paul has to be thankful to God not just for the quality of his own spiritual life but for the quality of the spiritual life of another believer. He's thankful for that. Not just for himself. He's not just concerned with his own life. He's concerned for the obedient life of another believer. Do we even have the ability to think of our own prayer life in such a way? Do we process it that way? Or do we think solely in terms of ourselves and our own personal relationship with God that we consider to be private and independent from everybody else even at church? Again, what I'm trying to hopefully make clear here is that as Paul writes about himself and Philemon, there's, there's a deeper network, a deeper concern here that transcends just the individual, but where Paul can express thanksgiving for the obedience of someone else. Now, let's develop this a little bit farther He states when he gives his thanksgiving to God for Philemon. This happens while making mention of you always in my prayers. So Paul tells Philemon that he is in the practice or the habit of thanking God for him. And he thanks God for him always. That is as a matter of course. He does so. When Paul makes a, a mention of him in his prayers, or the thanksgiving to God is accompanied with Paul making some remembrance of Philemon in Paul's prayer. So when he goes to God and when he offers his prayers to God, part of Paul's what we would call Paul's Prayer life includes the habit of thanking God for Philemon and making some mention of Philemon in his prayers. And you say, well, doesn't it stand to reason that if Paul is going to thank God for Philemon that he would have to mention Philemon in his prayers? Yes, there is that part. But as I hope to show you in just a minute, Paul isn't just expressing thanksgiving to God for Philemon. He is also praying for Philemon's continued spiritual growth. And so his making mention of Philemon isn't just, okay, I want to pray thanking you for Philemon. I checked that off my list. No, Paul is deeply concerned about Philemon's spiritual formation and he, while he is thankful for what he knows, he wants to see Philemon continue to grow. Keep that in mind. All right, now, the cause or the reason of Paul's thanksgiving. And there's, there's something going on here linguistically that I won't deal with. But in the first part of verse 5, Paul expresses or explains the conditions under which, or that have motivated him to express thanksgiving to God. You say, why is Paul thankful? He says, I thank, I thank God always, making mention you in my prayers. Well, why is he thankful? What has, what has become the foundation for thanksgiving? Verse 5 explains this. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all saints. So, the reason that Paul is thankful to God is that he has heard news about Philemon. And what he has heard of Philemon is he has heard of his love and faith. That love and faith are directed toward two individuals. Or actually, the love and faith are directed toward two individuals, and then they are expressed upon another group of individuals, or unto another group of individuals. So, Paul has heard of your your love and faith, he says. And with respect to love and faith, or one or the other, can be a collective here or it can single one of them out it's hard to tell probably best to understand it as both paul says of his love and faith of philemon's love and faith that you have them toward the lord jesus christ so philemon's love is directed toward christ philemon's faith is directed toward christ let's talk about these terms for a minute what is love and what is faith? Now, let me just tell a little backstory here for just a second or just to elaborate. I want you to understand the rationale. I've, I've always tried to be very careful, but even more so in the last year or so, to make sure that when we come across turns we use all the time to take the time to define them. Because one of the problems that can arise is that we use terms that we assume we all know what they mean, but in reality, we're not really clear on what they mean. And I want us to be clear on the terms that the Bible uses so that we can understand what is this thing that that Christ has shown toward us and that God has shown toward us and that we show toward Christ. What is it? So let's start with love. What is love? Now, with both terms for just a moment, here's something rather interesting. Neither love or faith are mere states of mind. They're not attitudes. Neither are they feelings. They may be expressed in feelings, but these words do not pertain to just the the mental state you hold at any given time where you're able to conjure up emotionally and mentally and convince yourself that yes, indeed, I love Christ or yes, indeed, I trust Him. Both love and and faith are though the result of mental processes and more specifically, they are the result of knowledge of the truth. That is, they're based upon information. So let's start with love. What is love? Love, this particular word, is agape in Greek. And what it refers to is the valuing of someone else more than yourself. That's all it refers to. God demonstrated his love toward us. And only in God is this unique, where God, of course, selflessly acted on our behalf, but he also did so for the purpose of demonstrating something about himself. But the other thing you need to know about love is this. Love always gets demonstrated through action, through behavior. And specifically, in the context of being a believer, love for Christ, love directed toward Christ, results in a life lived in obedience to Him. You cannot separate the two. In fact, we have a whole book, 1 John, dedicated to making this point. You claim that you love God. The proof in the pudding, to use our expression, is in the answer to this question. Do you live as a matter of consistency in obedience to God? You claim to love Him, there will be evidence of love for Him in the actual lifestyle being lived in obedience to Him. Now that sounds very simple, doesn't it? love toward one another in the context of Christianity which of course Paul expresses as well about Philemon love toward one another is simply this you and I obey Christ together so that we each benefit from our mutual obedience so by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love one to, toward one another. How do we show love? Well, also according to 1 John, we show love by, quote unquote, keeping his commandments. That is living in obedience to Christ. You live in obedience to Christ. I live in obedience to Christ. We demonstrate our love for him, and we demonstrate our love for one another. When one of us steps outside of those bounds or when one of us leaves the faith, we have every question to we have every reason to question. Did they love Christ and did they love me? Mutual obedience. Obedience. So love for Christ is not just a state of mind about Christ. It's not just feelings about Christ. Do you love Christ to such a degree that you give up your identity and you commit your life to live in obedience to Him? Even if it means negative consequences in this life for you. Secondly, it's not just love, but it's faith. And that faith is directed toward Jesus Christ. Now, what is faith? Faith, a better word for it, is trust. Trust directed toward Christ. And there's two sides of trust. In fact, I'm reading a book on this right now in an ancient context. But there's always two sides of trust. I hopefully have expressed this clearly to you over the years because this book is only confirming things that I've thought for a long time. There has to be two sides to trust. One... There has to be evidence that the object of your trust is trustworthy. Jesus Christ is the object of our trust. He has proven trustworthy. God is the object of our trust, the object of our faith. Why? Because He has shown Himself to be faithful, trustworthy. We know what he says is true. We know that he doesn't lie to us. We know that he fulfills his promises. He has demonstrated with evidence over the full existence of the human race. God has from time to time interjected Himself into human events to demonstrate that He alone is our Creator. God has informed us of these actions in His Word. We know that we can take Him at His Word. God has shown Himself to be completely trustworthy and therefore He is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of us to trust Him. And so we take Him at His word. We take Him on the basis of the evidence that He has provided. And we put our confidence in Him. And this is not just a state of mind or attitude like love that we conjure up in ourselves, but rather when we have faith directed toward Jesus Christ, it completely reorients our earthly allegiances. We become tied to Him. We identify with Him. He comes to define our identity. And we live out like that in the world. So we're, we're, we prove faithful to Him then in turn. And how do we prove faithful? We use that term all the time, don't we? Faithful to God. What does it mean to be faithful to Him? Does it mean just in your mind from time to time to think about him? No. Being faithful to God means that you live your life or that we live our lives in obedience to him as a matter of practice. Show me your faith without your works and I will do what? Show you my faith by my works. My life tells the story. Don't believe my words believe the evidence of my life. Philemon, Paul had heard of Philemon's love and faith toward Jesus Christ. Did he just hear about a guy out there somewhere in Colossae, a place Paul had perhaps never been, who had all these real strong emotions about Jesus? No. It was a man who claimed to love Christ who claimed faith in him, and his life proved that out. So that his love and faith weren't just directed toward Jesus, but rather there were beneficiaries of his love and faith. His love and faith were directed toward all the saints. Do you see that in verse 5 again? The love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus, and the love and faith which you have toward all the saints, all the holy ones. Philemon's love for Christ spilled over into love for the brothers. His trust for Christ, his trustworthiness toward Christ, demonstrated itself in trustworthiness toward other believers. It's not just about Philemon being an island unto himself, practicing a private faith that's between him and God, going to church solely for the purpose of substituting for some temple where there's a sacrifice to be made, where he spends a little time, offers a little prayer, and then goes about his regular life. No, Philemon's life is lived characterized by love toward Jesus Christ and the the saints or the holy ones, other believers are beneficiaries of the love and faith which Philemon had in Christ. Now again, I ask us, is this how we conceive of being a believer? I don't know if it is. I'm trying to be very careful here. Because I don't want to be chicken little, and I also don't want to be gloom and doom. But I I do wonder, have we developed this whole way of thinking about church and Christianity where, at best, our ties to one another are superficial? We spend an hour or so in the same room together, and then other than that, we just kind of peel off. And there's no real connection there's no real demonstration of, of fellowship and love toward one another. We don't benefit from one another's faith. We just kind of benefit from one another's brief time. But where there's, where there's really nothing else going on, where around the person of Christ, these deep abiding relationships are actually formed I don't know the answer to that. But I know the last years made me start wondering, the, you know, asking that question, especially as I've thought about more and more what we encounter in the Scriptures. How do we perceive of this? Is this, is this, like, is this building like a, an ancient temple for us? It, okay, here it is. It's Sunday. We've got that day. There's our sacrifice of an hour, and now we're back off. Hopefully that sacrifice of an hour placates God till next week and we'll come do it again. And then we don't really... right? Our, our, uh, we're, we're not doing anything mutually in the sense of growing together, of developing a bond around Christ together, of deep love together. Again, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's a question worthy of consideration given... What Paul knows about a man that he's never met. And Paul's concern about a man that he may have never met. And what he wants to see happen in the life of that man that he never met. I wonder, do we think this way? Or have we lost touch with the communal aspect of of being a church? of being believers in Jesus Christ. Where there's close-knit bond that forms between us. So that in order for our relationship to continue as it should, we have to love one another to tell each other the truth. We have to love one another to be and be forgiving. We have to love one another and and have deep enough bond with each other that for someone to leave the church, to leave the faith, for for someone to step outside the the proper way of living as a believer, it hurts us all. As opposed to just, oh, well another one bites the dust and we'll you know we'll just Make it up somewhere down the road. Somebody else will come in. We'll, they'll take their place and we just kind of go on. Paul seems to describe what Christianity is in much deeper terms. And just to finish some thoughts out that I'll build upon with you next week, Lord willing. When Paul says that he makes mention of Philemon in his prayers, look at what he says he does. Or look at how he what he explains the purpose of that is. Why does Paul mention Philemon in his prayers? Not just to give thanks to God, but also that the communication, that is the sharing of your faith, might come to be effectual, that is operative, by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. You've proven faithful. I pray that you will prove faithful faithful even more. The brothers have benefited from your faith. You have demonstrated your trustworthiness. You've obeyed God toward them as you should. And when I make mention of you in my prayers, the goal that I have in mind for you when I pray to God for you is that the operation, the working out of your faith might increase and that it will increase it will, it will become active even more it will become operative even more as you grow in your understanding or in your realization of all the good things that are us, in us or among us in Christ and inherent in, in that is two things very quickly one Paul's praying for Philemon's spiritual growth clarity and understanding Of what it means to be a believer. What it means to be in Christ. He's growing in Christ. So that he. Or Paul wants to see him grow in Christ. So that he then. As a result of his increased knowledge of Jesus Christ. Will be even more operative in the fellowship of his faith. And that other believers will benefit from his increased active obedience that's what Paul prays for I pray for you Philemon that your faith the, the sharing of your faith and he means that that thing you hold in common with other believers that the commonality of your faith will be operative and it will be operative It will come to be operative in your realization of all the good things that are in us in Christ. There's such a wealth of growth and maturity for us in Christ and we're to be mutual beneficiaries of one another's increased faith. Of one another's spiritual growth. That's what Paul prays for. So let me ask you, do you... Do you pray for expressing thanksgiving for one another? Do we do that? Do we pray for one another's spiritual growth and maturity so that the bond of faith between us will be even more operative? That we will mutually and therefore together know Christ with greater clarity and obey Him together. Creating a unity between us that rests not in our own personalities, nor in the sharing merely of a common building, but that is founded upon mutual conviction about Jesus and clear knowledge of Him. I hope that's the kind of church that we're becoming. I can tell you this for sure. It is the kind of church that I pray for us to be. And I hope that you will pray for us to be this kind of church. Or this kind of people as well. Because if we are this kind of people who follow Paul's example and who see our ties together with such depth. We will be the kind of church that we need to be, to be faithful to God in the time that we live. And that is our responsibility. So let's grow together. Let's grow in our love for Christ and in our love for one another. Let's grow in our knowledge of Him so that our mutual faith and the bond between us will strengthen. Thank you very much for being here. Let's stand together. I do invite you to be with us in our evening service uh, tonight at 7 p.m., also our service at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the goodness that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to be together as your congregation, and we thank you, Lord, for the knowledge of all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to learn what that means, to learn the significance of the death of Christ and help us to grow together in our knowledge of of you through learning of his character and nature. Father, we pray that we would exhibit your characteristics more and more toward one another, that we would be a, a loving people, concerned for one another, praying for one another, expressing our love and obedience together. Father, we pray that we would be found faithful to you and that others would see in our church and through our mutual growth, a congregation who stands out as a light in the darkness. And Father, we pray that we would be faithful to preach the message of the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray for the salvation of others who have not yet come to realize that they are sinners condemned before you apart from the grace and love that you have bestowed upon us through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Father, help us to be a people eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. And as we await his return, we pray that we would be found faithful, that we would glorify you, that we would encourage one another. And Father, we pray that you would be pleased with our church. We ask now your protection as we go to our homes. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.